0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the new Health Club Podcast. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders, and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. This episode of the New Health Club podcast is part of our special Heal Soul series, which is sponsored by Dr. Bronner's, the activist soap company from California. Dr. Bronner's is a family-owned company founded in 1948 that's dedicated to honoring the vision of its founder, Immanuel Bronner, by making personal care products of the highest quality and by dedicating profits to promote a better world for all. The Bronner family started making soap in 1858 here in Germany and carries on the family soap making tradition today by using the company as an engine for progressive social change. Dr. Bronner's dedicates profits to organizations working in support of regenerative organic agriculture, animal rights, community betterment, criminal justice reform, fair pay and fair trade, and drug policy reform, which includes the responsible and equitable integration of psychedelic medicine into American and global culture. For more information on Dr. Bronner's in Germany, please visit drbronners.de For more information on Dr. Bronner's globally and in the United States, please visit drbronner.com. Welcome to a new episode of the podcast. My guest on the show today is Dr. Monica T. Williams, a certified licensed clinical psychologist and associate professor at the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa. She received her undergraduate degree from MIT in 1992. She holds a doctoral degree in clinical psychology from the University of Virginia. Monica is researching how PTSD symptoms can be the result of racism and how racial trauma and race-based trauma look like. Monica also researches, partly in the context of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, how to treat racial trauma with psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy, meaning MDMA or ketamine in that context. I gotta say, my talk with Monica showed me I was more privileged and white than I thought. Monica was educating me in this episode about the racial trauma she's currently researching and boy I had to admit I've never heard of it in that way. I also never heard anyone talking about the power of microaggressions in a racist context. I would say it's more than about time to talk about this as we know. My favorite part in our conversation is when I ask Monica what her favorite white privileged cliche about race and color is and Monica says it's when white people would say they just would not see color, everyone would just look the same and be the same to them. I also talked to Monica about diversity in the psychedelic science field, about the effects MDMA-assisted therapy can have on race-based trauma and what happens if your therapist might not be aware of its own racism. I think the questions we need to ask if it comes to the topic of race and mental health are so many, they seem endless right now. And we are just starting here. So listen to our conversation. You cannot afford not knowing what Monica is talking about here. She's also very interesting, a funny person, I gotta say. And uh, she made the conversation very, very interesting and so that everybody can really know what this is, racial trauma, which seems very abstract if you just hear about it. So please enjoy the episode, and I'm very thrilled to have Monica on the podcast today and on the YouTube show. We have Monica T. Williams (laughs) on the show today, PhD and licensed clinical psychologist. We're very excited to have you on the show. Since you are, in my research, one of the very few psychologists uh, that is talking about racial trauma or race-based trauma, and um, at least the last one or the the only one I heard of who is actually bringing this whole topic into psychedelic and tries to research racial trauma, how to actually address this or like treat this with new psychedelic treatments or or healing devices you could in the meantime you could say. Maybe you tell us also a little bit about your background because you have this is just very quick how I introduced you because you have a lot of wisdom, you have a lot of titles, you have a lot of experience Um, so maybe you just um, elaborate a little bit what's your background and where you come from.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for asking. So I got my degree in clinical psychology at the University of Virginia, where my interest really going to graduate school was to study OCD. I was interested in obsessive compulsive disorder because I had a family member with it. And as I started to study it, I learned that there were racial disparities in terms of how the disorder was measured and there were differences in who was getting treated for it. So that's how I got interested in studying race and racism and mental health from from that experience. And so I've continued to study racism and mental health and how it can be an obstacle to getting care. And when I started my very first job uh, after graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, I was part of a research lab that did a lot of work with PTSD and one day I had a, a patient who was an African American woman who had been traumatized as a result of racism in her workplace. And that was the first time I saw what you know I'm calling now racial trauma in an actual case where I had to help a person get better from it. <laughs> and there was not any um, there was no training materials for me or roadmap and the other clinical advisors didn't really know how to be helpful to helping her. So I had to do my own research to learn how to how to help her through the trauma that had been caused by racism. So that's when I first started to think about this specific issue more closely. and uh, And that's why I'm interested now in treatments for racial trauma.
0: I mean, obviously, everybody who has had any kind of news or internet saw in 2020 how this Topic suddenly came forward with Black Lives Matters also. But I mean, also, I mean, I remember reading last year, these two books, uh, one is called So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijoma Oluo and um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rainey Edo-Lodge, which I thought, wow, interesting. There are two books that address this topic even before COVID and Black Lives Matters that we heard of. Um, in a very different way. So and what I found very interesting with your talk at Horizons, the psychedelic conference in New York, is that I think most people don't really know what racism twenty twenty looks like. Everybody still thinks of the Ku Klux Klan or like um oh the black person, I don't like their color, their skin color. Okay, yeah, but that's not racism twenty twenty. So maybe you um educate us Europeans about microaggression. <laughs> Um, racial trauma, race-based trauma, all stuff, all expressions that, um, if I'm really honest, I never heard about until a year ago.
1: Yeah, and I think you're exactly right. When most people think of racism, they are thinking about, you know, uh, Klansmen in white hoods and uh, maybe even the white supremacists or the white nationalists who descended on Charlottesville with their tiki torches and their flames at night. And we like to think that this isn't really a part of American life anymore. But um, but even those extreme manifestations of racism are still present. Um, but that's not the main problem. The main problem is these what we would call more covert or subtle forms of racism. We would include microaggressions in that category because uh, microaggressions, these are small acts of racism that people commit they don't realize that they're acting in a racist way, but it still has an impact on the person who's the target of the microaggression. And so most racism in day-to-day interactions is in the form of these microaggressions. And there's also a lot of racism that's already baked into a lot of our, our structures, our institutions, our rules and laws. And so when we combine the structural racism with the microaggressions or the everyday racism, you end up having a very profound, oppressive impact on people of color.
0: So of course, people of color are um, the number one group of people. I mean, I would say in America, definitely that experiences this. But for the first thing I would like to talk about is that if you really think about it, that if you experience even like, let's say five to 10, on top of uh, maybe even assaults or like, I mean, looking at the news at the moment, for example, and see every day, like another person of color is shot somewhere where you don't even know where that is, but still you have like a recurring reminder, almost like an alarm clock that these things are happening. So, I mean, it makes total sense that if you would have to experience that your whole life, this will make you super uncomfortable, like as a human being. So, why is it that we suddenly are like, oh, wait a minute, this is, if I think about this, um, this is really, of course, this would make me or every person a mental health victim. So, why do you think this is now that people just realize, okay, the sum of these things, they will kind of affect every human being?
1: I think that, um, you know, Western culture is in a little bit of denial about the reality of racism and that it's continuing to be perpetuated, that people are continuing to suffer. Nobody wants to think of themselves as a racist. No one wants to think they're capable of doing racist acts to other people. So this is a very unpopular idea. (laughs) And then people who experience racism, you know, especially with these smaller forms, these microaggressions, when they experience them, they're often told, oh, no, that wasn't really racism. That didn't really happen to you. And it makes people feel a little crazy. And it's also stressful. So people of color, we learn not to talk about these events because we know that usually people are going to be very unreceptive. And so that also helps to keep the blinders on and prevent awareness that this is happening and going on all the time and affecting us.
0: Just to give a little bit of an example maybe for a microaggression because I talked to a friend of mine yesterday and um, he is a person of, I mean, do you say person of color, right? Is that the most respectful thing you would say? Some people say if you don't have black friends, you will say person of color. If you have black friends, you say black friends, which is also interesting (laughs) already. (laughs) So, but he told me um, he grew up in Switzerland, right? But So if he goes on, um, let's say, in the elevator, and he knows he would be alone with another person in the elevator, he's not going to go into the elevator. Because since he grew up, he already would know, if I go in this elevator, the other person might say, well, this black person harassed me, so and there would be no witness. And so he never goes into an elevator, which is like wild if you think about this. Or like he he wouldn't come close to a woman who has her purse hanging over her shoulder, just that that woman wouldn't say, oh my God, um, you just tried to steal my purse because you're a black person. So I talked to him about this yesterday just in preparation also for our interview. And let's say, how did this happen that it became that way? I mean, this is like almost impossible to think about this. There's like 50 situations in a day that you could experience like that.
1: Yeah, it's true. And, you know, the whole thing with the elevator, there's like a whole culture around the dangers of elevators for black men. People don't know this, but many years ago in 1920s, I believe there was a large, um, well, they call it the uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma race riot. It wasn't really a riot, it was really a massacre. What happened is there was a community called Greenwood where there were many prosperous black people. And one day a black man was on an elevator with a white woman and she Mm -hmm. got off the elevator. She was very upset. She told some of her white friends that this black man made her uncomfortable. And so then after that, they rallied many white people and they burned down the whole town. They killed and lynched the residents. They had airplanes come and firebomb the community. So this was a whole community Mm -hmm. that was decimated because um, a black man got on an elevator and somebody was uncomfortable. You know, so there's a a cultural memory of this. And every time a man gets on an elevator and there's a white woman, this is a black man or maybe not even black, just somebody with dark skin, the women will clutch their purses instinctively. They may not even realize they're doing it, but it sends a message to the black man, oh, um, she thinks I'm dangerous and therefore I am in danger because she can say anything about me. And no one will believe me, they'll believe her. I could be arrested or worse. And these little things are little because they have to deal with them every day, but they're not really little. Even, even no. I uh, feel sometimes uh, anxious when I want to jog in my neighborhood that people will think, oh, you don't belong because you have dark skin. And this has happened to me before where I had a police car pull up to me while I was taking a walk through the neighborhood with a friend saying, oh, um, are you lost? And I'm like, no, I'm not lost. The neighbors called, they thought maybe, you know, maybe you didn't belong here. So when I go out, I have to think about what I look like, because if my clothes don't look nice and new, if I have holes in them or a spot on them, people might think, oh, she's a criminal. And so
0: Mm -hmm. um, I have to
1: prepare just for going in public.
0: Wow what is your favorite white privileged blind spot of people <laughs> like me, for example?
1: White privileged <laughs> blind spot. Probably, probably when people make these colorblind statements where they say, oh, I don't see color. Everyone's the same to me.
0: Oh. I'm wow. like,
1: oh, really? Cool. Uh-huh. Everyone's the same to you. <laughs> That's a nice <laughs> sentiment, but I know it's not true. I know you see my color, so don't pretend you don't. Not to mention, this is an important part of who I am. So maybe I don't want you to ignore that. Maybe I'm proud of my heritage. I don't feel ashamed of it. You shouldn't feel ashamed of it either, you know?
0: So, which is exactly this topic that, I mean, at least in Germany, there's always this kind of saying that people who come from other countries whatsoever should integrate into the culture. So, and then everything would be fine. But the opposite is basically, it seems to be true, because what you said also in your talk is the stronger the the consciousness is where you come from, the less you will experience um, a mental illness or like a, a problem with yourself, which I find very interesting because the whole idea of integration is basically a very difficult one. I lived in America for six years, which you would, where you would think, well, I mean, it's your culture, it's a Western culture, but I could also have lived in Russia. It was that kind of strange, that kind of other culture. I could do whatever I wanted to, but it would never be exactly the same. I think everybody had had that experience. What I'm saying is that what you're researching for people of color is actually true for every kind of person who comes from another culture, another country, moving into another country where it not coming from, for example, refugees that come here, Syrian refugees that have probably a similar experience than um, African-Americans living in America already for three generations.
1: Yeah, it's not fair to expect people coming from a completely different cultural context to just assimilate. You know, I mean, I I just moved from the United States to Canada. And as similar as those countries are, there's still things I can't find in the grocery store. (laughs) You know, some of my favorite foods I can't make because it's not part of the culture here. And I miss that. And even, even more so when moving to a place that's even more foreign. But I think it's a little bit unfair to demand that people assimilate for other reasons, too. I mean... For example, in the United States, let's say you had a lot of Italian immigrants coming, and maybe um, their children did assimilate, but they were able to because they were white. You can't assimilate if you're if you're not white because people are always classifying you. No matter how American you become, no matter how well you speak English, or you know eat hamburgers and apple pie, you're going to other people still see you as other. Yep and they treat you that way. So you can't really assimilate. So it's not, it's not a fair demand to make on people.
0: Coming back to your, I think, first study um, with MDMA and and together with MAPS, I guess, right? That would actually treat mental health issues coming or being created over the years. I mean, it starts basically when you are born, let's say, of a person who is 25 years old has already had an experience of 25 years of racism or microaggressions. So um, maybe you just tell us a little bit how you created the study and what what would be your, your best outcome, what you would like to show in the end.
1: So I really wanted to create a study site where people of color could come and they would feel very comfortable, they would feel safe, they would feel they would appreciate that we thought about them and that we are trying to approach the the treatment in a very informed way. Because what usually happens um, in medical contexts, people of color they they go to a doctor or they see a therapist and it's all designed for white people. And um, not only that, when they enter into that environment, they may not be treated with as much kindness or respect as white people are. And so we wanted people to know that when they came to see us, they were going to feel cared about. They're going to know that we want the best for them and that we want to approach this differently than treatment as usual. So, so that was really important. And in order to do that, it, it was necessary to make sure we had a very diverse team of clinicians. Most of the sites are, are mostly white researchers and most of them were not thinking about the needs of people of color And I realized that one of the most important things we could do is have a diverse team because even though I may know a lot about African-Americans, I don't know everything there is to know about, you know, Japanese American mental health or Hispanic mental health. So the more I could get people around me who were part of those cultures the more people we could serve, you know, in a culturally informed way. So I I called up uh, some of my friends and colleagues that were diverse and I said, hey, you have to join me. I need you. I need you as part of this. And they're like, "Okay." So we had a very diverse team and we were able to bring all of that knowledge with us. And on top of that, also, we were doing ongoing education as a team so that we were on the ball. We were like, okay, we're going to be like so ready. We're going to bring in like all these black people from the community and and we're going to bring in Hispanic people and we're going to bring in Asian people. And then the very first person that came in was Indian American. And we're like, oh man, <laughs> we, don't have anybody. we don't have any therapists that are Indian, <laughs> East Indian Americans. So we're like, okay, uh, well, we're going to do our best anyway. So uh, and so we did. It turned out It turned out great, but um, not without some bumps in the road because nobody had done it before. And we were breaking right. new ground as we were having to think about every piece of the study that had not been made with people of color in mind.
0: We are in a moment where a lot of studies kind of started addressing things that were basically unaddressed or like kind of not really addressed. We, we just read a lot or we heard a lot about the studies that are undertaken with MDMA with veterans right now, how they get rid of their depression or like suicidal thoughts the whole time. So like your study, would it be a similar kind of, would the structure be similar that people come in and they go on, on the MDMA journey, let's say, with two therapists and they talk about their their life or the the things that were actually addressing them in a way that would make them, as far as what I read about the outcome or like about the study that would make them also suicidal, right? I mean, at the end of the day.
1: This is uh, important because one of the things that we, that we notice is that when people are, you know, having their experience, a lot of times cultural material will come up, particularly Mm -hmm. if, you know, the, if the person's culture is important to them, if this has been a source of pain for them in some ways, this, this will emerge. And so the, it's a non-directive kind of therapy in that we don't necessarily have a protocol like, okay, you're going to talk f- exactly for 30 minutes about your worst trauma. It's not like that. Yeah. No. We're sort of very open to where um, the medicine takes the person in terms of where they're most in need of healing. But there's usually cultural themes that come up. And the problem is that most therapists are not comfortable with this material when it arises. So we have to be prepared to respond in in a way that's going to be helpful when it does. And certainly during a journey, there's many times where you don't see anything as the therapist. You just watch it unfold. But there are times where, as a therapist, you want to um, give someone support or hold their hand or encourage them to, you know, uh, go into a dark place. And the way that you do this um, is going to be informed by uh, how much, how comfortable you are around um, race, ethnicity, and culture as the person is on their journey. So, for example, uh, during our training, I remember very clearly there was. Um, an example of a Hispanic person who had cultural material come up during her journey, but the two therapists, they missed it. They, they didn't recognize it was cultural material. And so they didn't address it and it wasn't harmful per se, but it was definitely a missed opportunity to, to go deeper into something that I think um, would have been very fruitful. Uh, now you have the other side of the coin as well, where sometimes you have therapists actually committing microaggressions to the, uh, I know, to the patient while they're on their journey. And this can be extremely harmful because if you think about the fact that particularly with MDMA, which is a very heart-opening drug, you're very vulnerable. You don't Mm -hmm. maybe have all of the defenses that you've built up over your lifetime to protect you from the impact Mm -hmm. of racism. So I have seen cases where the therapist said some microaggressive things that it just really hurt the person, like right in their heart because they they were defenseless against it, and even felt suicidal as a result. So this is why it's so important that the therapists really be prepared and comfortable with this kind of material.
0: So cultural material is, for example, a story that they witnessed over and over again in school, or a recurring racist moment, for example
1: it could be, it could be a racist moment. It might not be a racist moment. It could be one therapist talked about her experience of, you know, sort of being uh, on a large type of African cloth where she was sort of flying around and reaching down, reaching seeing her family members and pulling them onto the the carpet with her, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, um, and it was very, it was very cultural for her. But I mean, I've had my own experience as well, where, I saw myself one time, I just saw myself looking back generations and generations to seeing slave women on plantations carrying heavy loads. And I feel, remember feeling so burdened. And I felt like I was carrying the weight that all of these generations of African-American women were carrying. And I felt like there was like a voice saying, put down this burden, it's not yours to carry. And I was thinking, I can't put it down. And I was so fortunate. I had a, a black woman who was a guide for me in this process. And I was so grateful because she understood exactly what I was going through. Whereas I don't know that anybody else would have understood that and been able to mm. support me as they went through that.
0: I'm happy to bring us up already. This, this whole, let's say, idea, not idea, like new science, you could say, of epigenetic trauma. And we will also have Rachel Yehuda on the show that has the similar studies towards the Holocaust survivors and, and their family. But I mean, so it's not only that you, are, you grow up in, let's say, now and in America in the 20th century, or in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It's like you inherit trauma and depression from the generation of slaves. So maybe you can explain a little bit what epigenetic trauma is.
1: Uh, Yeah. So these traumatic things that happened to previous generations um, are manifest in our genetics so that even today, several generations out, we may still be suffering from the effects of trauma that previous generations have experienced. And I think that this happens not only at an individual level, but at a whole, at a cultural level as well. And so, This is another layer that we put on top of all of the microaggressions and on top of all the systemic racism is we have this cultural trauma that is historical. And we see that definitely, we see that for African-Americans, definitely with the whole slave trade and the generations of slavery and um, disenfranchisement that were experienced even to the present day. But many, many cultures have traumatic histories that may still impact them in ways that people don't necessarily recognize or appreciate. I know there were many traumatic epochs in European history that, that many have ancestors uh, that weathered these things. And, um, and it, it kind of even shapes how we may behave or see the world today. And it definitely contributes to new traumas that might
0: happen. But I found interesting that, um, for example, if it comes to the, to the Holocaust epigenetic question, that even people, for example, including myself, who went on a psilocybin trip and saw a lot of German topics um, in a way that, meaning a concentration camp, and I had that conversation with a couple of German people who had done this, so that means the trauma is also installed in people who were actually the aggressors, without saying like, oh yeah, oh, they also traumatized these poor people, but... It's a, it's a different trauma than people who were harassed or who were killed, to make it short. And that's a whole different perspective, again, on just how these big uh, historical questions should be addressed in every nation, almost. And this is, again, where we come back to psychedelics because this seems to be, in my uh, perspective, the only tool that actually could break these cycles. As we, that we're talking about at the moment.
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. If you think about it, in order for people to be able to do such acts of cruelty to others, usually they will have had trauma themselves. They would have been traumatized at some point. And then even doing cruel acts is traumatic as well. When I think about the African-American history, they used to have postcards called lynching postcards that, that white people would send to each other just to invite them to birthdays and things like this. And on the back was a photograph of a person, a black person hanging by a rope on their neck from a tree who had been lynched or from a bridge or who was burned or whatever. And people thought that these were like entertaining. And one thing that you'll notice is that there'll often be a lot of white people standing around the dead body in posing, smiling and so forth. And in fact, there was a time where they were regular social events, like everybody come to the lynching. It was like a big picnic or a party. Everyone would come. They'd bring their families, their wives, their children, and they would all watch someone be lynched. Now, you have to ask yourself, what does that do to a child to watch another human being killed in such a horrible way? And everyone around them is acting like, oh, this is fun. This is a good thing, right? There's got to be some trauma that's caused by perpetrating this and there has to be trauma in the past that made people think this was a good thing to do and you know and of course many of these folks they do have traumatic histories many people who came to the united states in early america they were fleeing persecution in their countries of origin so um, but then you see them enact this persecution on others so it's a cycle and we need tools to break the cycle. And I agree, I think psychedelics could be a wonderful tool for breaking the cycle. But I don't think that that happens on its own. It has to be some intention um, with the use of it to break this, you know, cycles of of pain and abuse. But I'm optimistic that it could, that it could be helpful.
0: But I mean, what you just described with these postcards is um, basically the modern version would be George Floyd, right? I mean, somebody filmed it, okay, but other people were watching it and didn't do anything. So it's it's pretty much, this is a good example, I think, how it's still in the culture. Speaking about George Floyd, which I think everybody has seen that video and then there were all these marches in all the cities on the world. But another friend of mine said also that he would actually, every day he would get another video sent by friends where another black person is shot in America just they would actually send this to himself like, look, this is for you, you should see this because you're also black. So maybe this is also something very white and racist to do. Because out of this comes like a daily um, newsletter of uh, black people who got killed in the world, basically. So
1: I don't think do You know this what
0: is I mean? It. I don't think <laughs> No, it's no. But it's but is this something because social media at one point Um, makes it so visible to everybody. At the same time, it's like, oh, send this to Monica. She's black. Somebody got killed, so she she should know about this. This is is also racist in a way, isn't it?
1: I I, I agree. And I think when these videos first started um, emerging, people were hopeful, like, oh, now we have proof of what we knew was happening all along, but we couldn't prove it. Now it's out there. Now it's going to stop. But it didn't stop, and instead, these videos became like entertainment, and, um, right. and I think this is very, very harmful because it does perpetuate the trauma, even that trauma back to the postcards, which was mm-hmm. you know the modern, which was the social media of the day.
0: Now yeah, sure.
1: we see these uh, these horrific events happening to black people, and um, yeah, and we just pass it around. In fact, my niece, uh, actually, who lives in Berlin, Germany, oh,
0: okay.
1: she was. Surfing the internet and got uh, something to click on, and there was the George Floyd video. and she was so shocked and horrified when she saw it. She couldn't stop crying. She called me in the middle of the night. She was hysterical. She's like, "Why would somebody do this to another human being? And even though you know, she's you know, thousands of miles away, it's impacting her. I mean, and I you know in Canada, it's, it's uh, impacting black people everywhere, not just in America. And, and that's, you know, sort of the unfortunate piece of this, the reach of the social media has a potential to do good and a potential to do a lot of harm, too.
0: How do you think this could look like in a couple of years, that kind of, let's say, racial trauma therapy, obviously on the way to become like a own specific category in psychedelic therapy?
1: First thing is we need to train therapists, <laughs> And that's a lot of what I do is I train therapists. When you train therapists to manage racial trauma, there was a research study that was done where they surveyed counselors and asked them, how many of you have seen clients with racial trauma? And over 70% had encountered clients with racial trauma, but then they also asked how many of you have been trained to assess it and how many of you have been trained to treat it? And over 80% did not know how to treat it. And so- Um. It shows that we are not prepared and as a field and not been meeting our, our obligation to be able to um, serve people who have these problems. And so the first step is going to be awareness, which I think it's great. Like this broadcast is kind to helps to raise awareness, which is why I wanted to be here. But also right. the next step is the training and education of the mental health workforce and the diversification of the mental health workforce as well. Um, so that so that people can get the help that they need to help move through this, and of course, my you know one of my biggest hopes as well is that psychedelics could be a big part of that. And I know that we've started we're starting to see some movement in this area too. I know MAPS has been active in training therapists of color to work with uh, PTSD, and still more needs to happen.
0: So that means that there should be Syrian therapists here too, right? I mean, Absolutely. psychedelic Syrian therapist. If anybody's there (laughs) please let us know
1: Uh, when i heard that maps was going to be doing some work in in europe and i know they were in there was a lot of discussion about them working with refugees and new immigrants who'd been traumatized the first thing i thought was okay yeah but how many of those folks are on your treatment teams because if you don't have them on your team you're not going to have them as patients
0: yeah that's that's a, a big gap still but i mean it's interesting anyway that that I feel like a lot of people who are interested in a psychedelic experience, even if they're not even doing it for mental health reasons, I feel what's growing also is that most people say they would like to do this in their mother tongue, for example. And, I mean, we just had a couple of minutes before I talked to you, Martijn Scherp from Synthesis, we had on on the show. And, um, I mean, if you go there, you can do it in English because it's an international context and um, most people coming from let's say like an international world for them it's a no problem but I mean I, we got a lot of feedback from from people in Germany who said like yeah but I would like to do this but I would need to do it in German it's just I think it's very interesting how this is moving towards a very um, almost like anti-global not movement but but situation where people want to be addressed in their culture and in their language And I think this is the next level also that's coming out of the psychedelic um, research a little bit.
1: I I agree. And I think that, uh, you know, so much of a person's culture is tied to their language. Even in the United States, when I lived in Kentucky, I had, um, you know, in my research lab, I had several Hispanic bilingual uh, graduate students who wanted to get more experience working with clients in Spanish which I was very supportive of. But the problem was we couldn't find any supervisors who spoke Spanish who could oversee their work. And it just seemed to me to be such a ridiculous obstacle to encounter today even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we couldn't find a Spanish-speaking psychologist to, um, to help train them. And it's so mm-hmm. important now that I'm in Canada, there's a big need for, for people to be able to do the work in French. And this is a struggle because uh, I'm having to learn French now. And boy, it's hard to do this at my age.
0: (laughs) It's worth it, though.
1: (laughs) Thanks a (laughs) lot.
0: Let's see. I would think that a lot of people looking at these or listening to these are actually very much interested in, first of all, like you say, that somebody acknowledges their racial trauma without saying, like, well, pull yourself together. It's all good. Like. You have to be stronger. But at the same time, I think, and especially this goes, I think, for a younger generation who's now in their 20s or 30s, they would love to engage in this immediately, like getting rid of their early childhood racism experience. So what would you say is possible at this point to do if you... Really want to go for this. And I mean, you might even soon be able to go to another country again.
1: Right. Well, I don't know that, like right now, today, we are set up to do this because, for yeah. one, you know, the psychedelics uh, that are being studied, they're all in research settings and you can't get them legally for the most part. And then, even in the research settings, there's very few that are equipped to help people with racial trauma. That being said, we are working actively to make this available. Right now at my clinic in Connecticut, we are doing psychedelic treatment for racial trauma. We don't yet have access to um, MDMA, but we are doing with ketamine and we have had some very successful uh, outcomes with that. In fact, we just wrote a paper on a case study of a woman with racial trauma. She she came from another state to our clinic in Connecticut and, we, and received, you know, three um, courses of ketamine assisted psychotherapy and people don't know this, but ketamine is incredibly psychedelic. I mean, it's one of the most psychedelic substances I've ever tried.
0: <laughs> and, um, and it's legal in, in a clinical context, right? I mean, it's everywhere, like all over the world. Exactly.
1: Most people are like doctors tend to use it for anesthetic. It is being used for um, infusions for major depression but very few people are using it um, as an adjunct to therapy. And that's what's different mm-hmm. about what we're doing. And I know that there are places that are sprouting up that are doing this. But I don't know of any other than our clinic that is focused on racial trauma. Although certainly I have been, I've been having conversations with a lot of groups that want to start doing this. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be more widely available soon. So that's one thing that the only thing I know of that's right now available. Mm -hmm. But we are going to be starting Expanded Access in January through MAPS and uh, with a focus on people of color who have racial trauma with MDMA. I have a colleague um, who's also going to be doing a research study on racial trauma with MDMA, and I'm hoping to start racial trauma um, with refugees study here in Ottawa, if I can get some grant funding for that.
0: So what that means, what you're doing could be kind of transferred to, let's say, Germany, too. I mean, to research the whole situation in terms of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD, in refugees, right? I mean, it's exactly the same.
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I've even heard from some people in Europe. I, I heard from one gentleman who has a lot of trauma around his culture, and he was seeking um, help as well. He's a Roma individual, and um has dealt with a lot of discrimination. So I think there certainly are many different communities in, in Europe that could benefit from from treatment, you know, focused on racial trauma.
0: So that means the the bigger picture is that it's like going to a regular therapist, right? Just when you think you wanna do it, you're just gonna go or to a I don't know, to church. <laughs> I don't know. There's sometimes like this like we were talking about this earlier, also like how spiritual This has to be and how clinical this has to be, right? But it seems that the clinical thing has to come first to allow the spiritual experience. Would you agree with this?
1: I think so. You know, it's interesting because I've been doing, you know, clinical research for for years and years before I got involved in psychedelics. And we never talked about spiritual things. It was not ever part of the protocol uh, or anything. I mean, certainly people had spiritual beliefs and we always respect them, but it was not something that was considered part of science. But now that I'm doing psychedelics, it's like you can't escape it. There's like always a spiritual piece to it that you can't ignore. And it was really quite surprising and alarming for me to hear researchers that, you know, are doing neurobiology and hard science talk about mysticism and spirituality <laughs> and other other planes of existence. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so Big question. I think you can't separate these when you talk about psychedelics.
0: <laughs> okay. But I mean just one last question. When was your first encounter with psychedelics?
1: Um it was really getting involved with maps, the map study. Yeah. They mm-hmm. had a opportunity for the therapists who were doing the research to, to sort of come to one of their, their sites and have uh, one uh, dose of MDMA in the same way that the patients would. And this was seen as a great way to educate and train the, the new therapists. And they said, hey, would you want to do this? And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought about it and I'm like, well, oh, gosh guess if I'm going to do this work I should do it and there'll be a doctor and a nurse and I guess it doesn't get any safer than that. Mm-hmm. So I thought about them like yeah you know I think I'm going to do it. So that was really my first experience.
0: So but then after that experience you realized that it was like the way to go basically for this, right? I mean, <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs>
1: so, I remember during my experience thinking like why is this illegal? This doesn't make any sense. <laughs>
0: Of course and it doesn't. I mean in the way it is so it doesn't make sense. I think so too.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. But since I'm doing the work now, you know, I think it's important to sort of understand the things you're studying. So
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. That was great. Great conversation. I have um many more questions about white privilege for a second round. Oh. We <laughs> could I mean, it would be really interesting um to do this Another episode with just like only about white privilege that people don't know that it's white privilege. We could we could have like a five hour session maybe.
1: Oh yeah, I could yeah I could definitely talk about that for a long time.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Good luck with everything, and keep us posted. What's happening? And um, yeah, and this episode is sponsored by Dr. Branas, of course forgot to say this
1: yeah Dr. Barnes has been a great supporter of psychedelic research so I really
0: appreciate they are it. so cool.
1: that was what made me decide to, to come today when I when I heard that that, that
0: was... no of course and um, they just
1: okay, I'm on it so because I've had so many invitations with everything going on I haven't been able of to course. do them all yeah. so, but I'm glad I was able to make it
0: yeah thank you it was great great conversation thank you have a good day